Well, why don't we turn in our Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 13 as we continue to make our way through the Gospel of Matthew together. Uh, we will not be taking a break in the Gospel of Matthew for Advent, but we'll continue to press on. Uh, it's probably as good a time as any just to remind ourselves of the message of Matthew. Many of you will have been coming from a growth group in which you've looked at Matthew chapter 1 and the genealogy that begins this great book. And if you have, you will notice that, or you will remember rather, that Matthew begins his book by tying Jesus' ancestry back to Abraham, the one who receives the promise of blessing to all nations, and to David, the great king who sits eternally on the throne, uh, or Jesus rather, sits eternally on the throne of David as God promises to David to give him a king who will always be on the throne. There are these themes of authority in the person of David and nations in the person of Abraham. Those themes then are taken up in the Great Commission. Go therefore into all nations, Abraham, because I have all authority, David, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have said together that the message of Matthew's Gospel is that Jesus is the King who reigns over the kingdom of heaven, which consists of disciples from all nations who obey all that He has commanded. So anytime we turn to the Gospel of Matthew together, we're asking ourselves the question, what does this passage teach me about King Jesus? How does this text advance my understanding and fuel my worship of Jesus as King Jesus? And Lord. And so we ask those same questions this morning as we turn to Matthew 13, verse 53, and read through chapter 14, verse 12. I'd like to encourage you to have a Bible open in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, you can use one of the church Bibles in front of you. If you don't have a Bible of your own, we'd be happy to give you one at the information desk as you leave this morning. Or you could just lift the Bible from the pew in front of you. No one will stop you on your way out. So we're just glad to have for you to have a copy of God's Word on your lap as we make our way through the passage together. So let's read together from Matthew 13, beginning in verse 53. As we turn there, we read these words, When Jesus had finished these parables, He went away from there, and coming to His hometown, He taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished, and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. 
But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. This is God's word. Let's bow and pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning reminding ourselves of what you tell us in 2 Timothy, that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable, has the ability of and the power to make complete your servant. We remind ourselves again this morning that your word is precious and to be sought after more than fine gold. The words that come from your mouth are sweeter than honey. And that we need to submit ourselves again and again to the authority of what you have said. And so we pray this morning, Heavenly Father, that as we look to your word, that you would give us a right attitude of reverence and humility, that we would be those people described by Isaiah, those who are humble and contrite and who tremble at your word. We pray that you would make the book live to us, that you would show us yourself within your word, that you would show us your Son, and that you would make the book live to us. We ask all that we have in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was a Pennsylvania native by the name of Philip Bliss who wrote these words. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bliss, in writing what would become one of his most well-known and famous hymns, puts his finger on one of the great mysteries, one of the great, um, if you will, paradoxes of the Christian faith. And that is the one that we proclaim to be the Son of God, the one that we have come this morning to worship, was here on earth a man of sorrows. It seems almost impossible to reconcile in our minds. Man of sorrows. What a name for the Son of God who came. Now undoubtedly, Bliss was taking as his inspiration Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 3, which reads, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. This great hymn is a meditation, really, on the work of Jesus upon the cross, his suffering on our behalf, and the implications of all that Jesus accomplished for those who confess him 
as Lord and follow Him. But I think if we're not careful, we might subtly begin to think that the sufferings of Jesus, this description of the man Christ Jesus as a man of sorrows, began at the time of the cross. When in actual fact, the entire life of our Lord on earth was one marked by suffering. He was, in fact, despised and rejected by men. From cradle to the grave, He was a man of sorrows. This morning as we turn to Matthew 13 and 14 into this passage which no sane person would read out just before Thanksgiving, we come to learn something about this King whom we worship. We've come to understand what it means to say that this Jesus is in fact a man of sorrows. What does it mean to worship this King? What does it mean to belong to this King? I want to invite you on a journey of discovery through this passage with me this morning in order to find out exactly who this Jesus is. There are two main portions in the passage in front of us. In verses 53 to 58, the end of chapter 13, very clearly we see that Jesus is rejected. And following directly on from that in chapter 14 and verses 1 to 12, we see astonishingly that John the Baptist is beheaded. It's the clear testimony of the New Testament. And we want to discover for ourselves this morning why the Gospel writer, why Matthew would place these two things together. What is it that he wants us to see about Jesus in telling us all of these things? The first thing that we want to see is that Jesus is rejected. Verses 53-58. to 58. Now you would be forgiven for thinking, at least at this point in Matthew's Gospel, that if Jesus were to make His way back to His hometown, He would have been welcomed by an adoring crowd. That if there were anywhere that would appreciate who Jesus is and all that He is doing and has been doing, it would be Nazareth of Galilee. If you and I traveled back to the town, the last town that I lived in, the city of Akron, you would see just about at every entry point into the city, two signs. On the top, you would see Akron Corporation Limit. And then directly underneath, you'd see Home of LeBron James with a list of all of his accomplishments. Never says anything about my accomplishments. It's only LeBron. It's probably because there's only room for one sign, so I won't begrudge them that. But you might be forgiven for thinking that as you walked the dirt road into Nazareth, that you might see a sign. Nazareth of Galilee, Corporation Limit, Home of Jesus. And in the words of 11, chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, the words of Jesus Himself, it might read, The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by Him. But in actual fact, if there is a blessing pronounced upon those who are not offended by Jesus, and there is, 
Those are the words of Christ Himself. It seems that His countrymen want nothing to do with it. They can't be bothered with this blessing because the text proclaims as clearly as possible that they took offense at Him. The setting for this scene is Jesus finishing up with His parables of chapter 13 and coming into His hometown, verse 54, where He taught them in their synagogue. It's instructive for us just to note how devoted to preaching and teaching Jesus is. He's just finished the great parables of chapter 13, and as soon as he makes his way into his hometown, he gets to the synagogue so that he can continue to preach. Now, anyone who's been reading the Gospel of Matthew carefully will know that in chapter 13, this issue of opposition and divide has been amplified. There are those, according to Jesus, to whom it has been given to know the mysteries of the secrets of the kingdom, those who are inside, and there are those to whom it has not been given, those who have hardened their hearts against Christ and the message that He is proclaiming, and the line of demarcation is thickening. There are those who are on the inside and those who are on the outside. And it's almost as if Matthew wants to illustrate for us just how committed in unbelief those on the outside really are. Because rather than being welcomed by an adoring, welcoming committee, Jesus is despised and rejected, in the words of Isaiah. There is clearly something about the way that Jesus preaches. I defy you ever to find a moment in any of the Gospels where Jesus preaches with no response. Here the response is a series of questions. You see that in verse 54. The question that heads all questions is, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Where did he get his words and where did he get his works? Where is this man from? But I want you to see that these questions are not being asked out of an out inquisitive heart. They're not being asked from a disposition of a desire to believe. These questions are being asked pejoratively as an insult, almost as a challenge to Jesus. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? No rabbinic training here. He's been in a wood shop his entire youth. We know who his father is. He certainly didn't get any of his wisdom from Joseph. Is not, this the, is, is not his mother called Mary? Isn't that the girl in, in around our community who has that really crazy story about a virgin birth? Not very much religious credentials there. Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, just average, normal guys, all of them? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then, verse 56, here it comes again, where then did this man get all of these things? This is a disposition of unbelief. This is a rejection of Jesus. We know who you are. We know the family you've come from. So we're not buying what you're selling. 
What began as astonishment at hearing the Word of God proclaimed by the Son of God gives way very quickly to offense. They stumble over Jesus. The very thing that happens all of the time in 21st century America happened in 1st century Nazareth. They trip over the person of Christ. They take offense at Him. But the key text in this paragraph, a text that we need to begin to sort of wrap our minds around and file in our brains for later, is this response that Jesus gives to His hometown as they question Him. He says, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. A prophet is rejected by those who are closest to him. This is a passage quoted very often from preachers who are sent packing out of their pulpits. This first application is to Jesus, despised and rejected of men, and most stunningly, by the very people who grew up alongside the sinless Son of God. Can you imagine? What would childhood games have been like with a sinless Jesus? There would have been something different. And yet, despite all of this, despite the wisdom and the mighty works, they reject Him. And we're left being told that Jesus did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. It's not, it's not because their unbelief somehow handcuffed the Son of God. It's simply that He wouldn't pander to the crowds in their unbelief. Jesus is rejected. But the bulk of our text this morning comes in chapter 14. This text that I've headed, John the Baptist is beheaded. What in the world is this doing in the Bible? I mean, I'm sure that some of us have read chapter 14 of Matthew and our personal devotions and went, right, let's get on to chapter 15 as quickly as possible. I'm virtually certain that there's never been, I'd love to be proven wrong here, there's never been a children's Bible which included a chapter on John the Baptist's beheading. That doesn't make for pleasant Sunday school material, does it? And if that's not the case, I can absolutely guarantee you that no one in this room finds their life verse in chapter 14, verses 1 to 12. Where would you even start? In fact, the only time you ever hear this passage quoted is when someone says, you know, they want his head on a platter. It's become a figure of speech. And yet this gruesome and realistic portrait of the fate of John the Baptist is here in Matthew's Gospel for a reason. And that reason, I want you to see, is to teach us about the King that we worship. One of the things that is essential in reading the Bible is being a careful reader of the Bible. I want to point out a few things to you that show us that Matthew intends for us to read about John the Baptist's beheading in light of Jesus' rejection. Firstly, as Jesus is being rejected in Nazareth, the people begin to ask questions. Where did this man get these things? They've asked it twice. Herod the Tetrarch says, if you've got questions, I've got answers. Look there in verse 1 and 2. This is John the Baptist. 
He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers, that's the exact same phrase as mighty works, are at work in him. Where did this man get these mighty works? Herod says John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. Secondly, there are three gospel accounts of the death of John the Baptist. Only one of them refers to John the Baptist as being a prophet, and that's Matthew. That's very interesting, coming off the heels of Jesus saying a prophet is not without honor except for in his hometown. So there are connections here in the questions and the answers, in the mighty works and the miraculous works, and in the reference to both men as prophets that signals to us that this account of the death of John the Baptist is meant to teach us something about the rejection of Jesus. But what? Herod answers the question, where did this man get these mighty works? By saying, this is John the Baptist. Let's notice that if, in fact, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, this is more terrifying than a Christmas carol. Because Herod's the one who put John the Baptist to death. So as he proclaims this, he's doing it from a position of terror. Oh no, I've executed this man who's been raised from the dead. Now, of course he's wrong. But this answer from Herod signals for us or triggers for Matthew the accounts of John's death. Now, John the Baptist is clearly for Matthew and for Jesus a prophet. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11 that John the Baptist was more than a prophet, he's the greatest man born of women. And as we might expect, John the Baptist, being a prophet, does what a prophet does. He proclaims the truth of the Scriptures. And so the setting for this scene involving John the Baptist is the backdrop of Herod the Tetrarch's sordid relationship with his woman by the name of Herodias. Look at the passage in front of us. Verse 3, Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison. We were told all the way back in chapter 11 that, that John the Baptist was in prison. Chapter 11, verse 2, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, but he doesn't tell us why John's in prison. But now he does. Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. He's a preacher of righteousness. Now, some of us are going to sit around a Thanksgiving table this week with some very interesting family dynamics. In fact, all of us, I would imagine, are going to sit around a table with some very interesting family dynamics. I don't think any of us are going to be able to hold a candle to Herod the Tetrarch and this woman named Herodias. Let me encourage you, as you make your way into Thanksgiving, that Herod the Tetrarch's father was a man by the name of Herod the Great. He's of Matthew chapter 2 fame. He is the one who pronounced that every child two years old or younger needed to be executed at the birth of Jesus. Comes from wonderful stock. This woman, Herodias, is firstly the daughter of Herod the Tetrarch's brother, Aristobulus. So as you're doing the math, Herodias, from one angle, is Herod the Tetrarch's niece. Just so happens that Herodias is also the wife 
of Herod the Tetrarch's half-brother, Herod Philip. So from another perspective, she's not only his niece, she's his sister-in-law. But just so that they can give shape and definition to the phrase, it's complicated, Herodias is also Herod's wife because one day when Herod was visiting his brother Herod Philip, he decided he was in love with Herod Philip's wife and she was in love with him. So they both divorced their spouses so that they could get married. So this woman is Herod's niece, sister-in-law, and wife all in one. Someone passed the stuffing. So here they are at this tremendous party. And the backdrop is that John has been in prison because he has proclaimed to Herod that this is unlawful. I don't know what he said to Herod. Maybe he preached Leviticus chapter 18. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. He had a lot to go on. But one way or another, John the Baptist preached to Herod and was imprisoned for it. Herod, being a good king, politician, had a knack for playing both sides. Though he wanted to kill John the Baptist for the way in which he preached, he feared the people because the people viewed John the Baptist to be a prophet. So one day, Herod decides to have a birthday party for himself, and all the top-ranking officials in the quarter of his kingdom were there. And in walks Herodias' daughter. I haven't quite done the math or worked out how all the relations to Herod and Herodias' daughter would, would map out. You can do that at lunch today with your friends. Um, but she walks into the room, and she is the entertainment for the night. Now, there's nothing immediately on the face of the text that screams lewdness or inappropriate behavior, but it, it certainly seems to suggest that. She is the entertainment for the night, and as she dances before Herod and his company, Herod is so pleased that this pompous, egotistical, power-hungry king says, I will give you whatever you ask for. It's within my power to give you whatever you ask for. You've pleased me so much. And in a matter of moments, the key text from this setting is proclaimed within earshot of all of his company. This is the kind of thing when it's spoken out at a party that causes the record to skip, causes wine to be expelled across the table. As this young girl, maybe 12 years old, comes and says, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And within just a couple of moments, John sends for his men who come back with John's head on a platter. Gruesome. I want you to notice just how matter-of-factly these events are recounted here in the passage. Verse 10, he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. Verse 11, his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Verse 12, his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now, here are the facts. If you and I were attempting to make a movie based on the Gospel of Matthew, this scene alone just won us a hard R. Did it not? There's no getting around it. This is gruesome. 
So the question that we have to ask is, why is this in the Bible? Is it, is it that, you know, it's my wife's birthday tomorrow, is this text supposed to be used by me to learn how not to throw a birthday party? <laughs> it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But there's a birthday party here. It's a terrible party. I wouldn't have liked to have been there. Is the text meaning to tell me how not to throw a birthday party? Probably not. Are we then to look to John the Baptist as an example for how we are to live? I mean, could it be that John the Baptist here is meant to give you and me an example of being willing to be bold and speak the truth, even at great cost to ourselves? Now certainly, if we are Christian people, we will acknowledge and affirm, absolutely we are to speak forth God's words whenever opportunity arises. No matter what the cost to our reputation, even to our very lives, we proclaim God's word. But I don't think that that's what this passage is meaning to teach us either. Are we then, on the other hand, to look at Herod, this tetrarch, as a tragic figure, sort of an example of how not to live? Is Herod an example of what it means to be inflamed by lust and the dangers of lust? Certainly that's something that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. He says it's not simply enough to avoid physical adultery. The moment you've lusted in your heart, you've committed adultery. Or, is Herod a tragic figure that seems to signal to us the imprudence of making a rash vow? I'll give you anything you want without even thinking about the consequences. Jesus taught about vows in the Sermon on the Mount. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Is Herod a living example of what it looks like to make a rash vow and then being forced to pay it? I don't think so. So what in the world is this doing in our Bibles? Jesus and John are both prophets. These passages are linked by common language and themes. And we have already seen plainly in the words of Jesus that a prophet is not without honor except for in his hometown and among the people of his own household. As we move through the Gospel of Matthew, that declaration expands to the nation of Israel as His very own people reject Him. And the question that you and I are meant to ask in a careful reading of Matthew 13 and 14 is, what ultimately will it look like for this man of sorrows who is despised and rejected by men? What will it look like for him truly to suffer. What does this text teach us about the king that we worship? Very plainly, it teaches us that this Jesus, the Jesus of Matthew's gospel, is in fact the prophet without honor who will soon, like John, be put to death. We're taught in English class to look for foreshadowing, right? As you read 
works of literature. Here is foreshadowing as plain as day, as John the Baptist in his beheading helps us see where Jesus' life is trending. He, like John, will be put to death. If you need a more explicit connection between these two and the fates that they experience, we turn just two chapters forward into Matthew chapter 17. It is good, loved ones, to remind ourselves of the sufferings of Jesus lest we misunderstand Christ entirely. There is a dangerous approach to the Christian life that stems from a faulty understanding of the two comings of Jesus that views the Christian life purely from a sort of triumphalistic notion, like it's all glory. And yet the Gospel shows us over and over and over again that the pathway to glory is the pathway through the cross. Here in Matthew 17, Jesus takes three of His disciples, Peter, James, and John, and He leads them up a high mountain by themselves. Verse 1. And He was transfigured before them. Verse 2. And His face shone like the sun, and His clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with Him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If You wish, I will make three tents here. One for You, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Here is a picture of glory. Here is Jesus peeling back the curtains on His majesty, His kingly glory for Peter and James and John to see. And do you notice what happens immediately? Peter says, let's just stay here. Let's just camp out here. I've had a taste of glory. I don't want anything else. And what Jesus says next addresses that very thinking from Peter. Look at what he says in verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision. It seems to me like you'd want to tell everyone. I saw the Lord in His glory. This is the Messiah. Jesus says, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Why? Because it's only on this side of the resurrection that you and I actually understand Jesus, that it's the pathway of the cross that's the pathway of glory. Let's not get people hooked on glory until they've gotten a sight of suffering. The disciples asked Him, then why do the scribes say that Elijah must first come? And He answered, Elijah does come and He will restore all things, but I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize Him, despised and rejected, but did to Him whatever they pleased. And what did they please? If you're going to preach like that, then it's off with your head. So also. So also. 
the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Friends, in our desire, our zeal to have sort of a relevant word from the Lord, in our zeal and our desire to apply the Bible, we can miss the Gospel. Matthew has placed this text about John the Baptist right on the heels of the rejection of Jesus so that you and I see when Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor, we know exactly what it means for a prophet to be dishonored. And that is this prophet will have to die. But the Gospel message is clear. That unlike the fearful and superstitious claims of a despotic king, Jesus actually does rise from the dead. That when Jesus lays down His life, when in fact He suffers, He does so for the sins of His people. He lays down His life and the place of His people's lives and is raised from the dead so that all who look to this King this man of sorrows. So that those, when confronted with the person of Jesus, do not hide their faces, but turn their faces towards Him. And repentant faith might have the blessing of being welcomed in to His kingdom. Man of sorrows, what a name. It almost doesn't even seem right. Man of sorrows, but king over the kingdom of heaven. How, how do we wrap our minds around this truth? And yet, as Bliss finishes that great hymn, he closes with this final stanza that sort of brings all of the pieces of the puzzle together for us. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. He's a man of sorrows. Yet final stanza, when He comes. So there's a part two to this whole thing. When He comes, our glorious King, all His ransomed home to bring, then anew this song will sing hallelujah. What a Savior. Is the Jesus that you worship this morning the Jesus that walks the path of suffering, the path of the cross, before He receives the crown. I dare say if it is not, then you are worshiping a satanic counterfeit. Do you remember what the evil one says to Jesus? If you are the Son of God, I'll give you all the kingdoms now. Do you know what Peter says to Jesus when he comes to him and Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, no, Lord, you'll never go to the cross. And Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan. Because the only Jesus we have is the Jesus who suffers. The only Jesus we have is a Jesus that we can look at with 
nail-pierced hands, even as He exists now in heavenly glory, and say, Hallelujah. What a Savior. Jesus is the prophet without honor who will soon be put to death, but who will rise victoriously, we might add, will come again in glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have told us in Your Word the truth about Your Son. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, despised and rejected by men. And yet, to those who will look to Him in repentant faith, what a Savior and glorious King. We thank You that Jesus never attempted to shortcut His glory by avoiding the path of the cross. That He died for our sins and rose for our justification. Father, we pray for any in this room this morning who have yet to trust in Your Son. We pray that by Your Holy Spirit You might draw them to a saving faith even now. That they might look to the suffering Christ and that they then might participate in the glory of eternal life with Him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.